Hello all, uh, welcome to another episode of DirectShift Stories. And today uh, we are joined by our CEO Vamshi Krishna Gunukula and uh, Dr. Karen Bullock, uh, PhD. She's a professor and head of School of Social Work at North Carolina University in the College of uh, Humanities and Social Sciences. She earned a PhD in sociology and social work from Boston University, a master's degree uh, MS in social work from Columbia University in New York City. And uh, let's find out uh, what it takes to uh, be in the mental health space. And uh, over to you, Wamshi. Thank you. Thank you, Raj. Thanks for um, creating another episode here. And thanks for enabling us bring uh, you know, great stories forward. Thanks again. Uh, thank Dr. You. Bullock, thank you so much for joining us today. It's, it's you know, our uh, privilege to have you on our platform. Um, you know, for all our viewers and audience out there, you know, as you all know, uh, we have been uh, focused on bringing specific stories around the mental health space uh, to create more awareness and um, to create to spread more information about the trends on mental health space um, to our audience and to the clinicians and uh, other practitioners in our network. Uh, and today we have um, you know Dr. Bullock and you know like, like Raj said, she's the head of. Um, uh, department head of school, uh, the social work um, uh, school in North Carolina State University, uh, and has done tremendous amount of work in the area of mental space, um, you know, aging population, um, oncology, etc. And um, you know, serves on uh, as chair, vice chair of, of of multiple committees and multiple organizations focused on quality of care, especially in the aging population. Um, you know. We all ha actually have to take a moment to thank uh, Dr. Bullock for her uh, service. Uh, you, know, you are no less than a hero, Dr. Bullock, especially because what pandemic has taught us is uh, truly, um, you know, all of our healthcare workers are great heroes. Um, and we definitely thank you for your uh, service in the field. And today we are really excited to learn more about your journey, your stories, you know, what got you here, what inspired you to be here, to be touching millions of lives out there. And now, as an as an educator and head of school, what are you seeing as um, you know trends in this space, as well as aspirations for your students, etc. So, over to you. Without much further ado, um, people, I present to you all Dr. Karen Bullock, um, and you know she has agreed for me to call her Karen. So um, uh, I, I, I I'll be happy to call her Karen. Call her my friend. Um, and uh, uh, you know, uh, gladly presenting to you all, um, Dr. Karen Bullock. Karen, please, you know, I may not have done justice to your profile, so please share additional information about, you know, about you. What are you doing today? What have you done in the past? What got you here? Um, you know, and you know, this successful journey. Please share some some glimpses of us with us. Well, thank you, Raj. I'm delighted to be here with everyone today. And that's a really tall task I have to cover all of that. So first, I want to acknowledge um, the heroes. As Raj said, we've really expanded our view and definition of heroes. And I never want to detract or take anything from veterans or those who serve in the military services. And that those are the folks that we, by and large, refer to as heroes. But since the COVID-19 pandemic, we have seen Folks on the front lines, different front lines, these front lines around healthcare really step up and put themselves um, in spaces in which they are at risk. And so we know that people have lost their lives in terms of caring for individuals who have been impacted by the virus, but also they themselves, because many frontline workers um, have the precursors, if you will, for not being able to um, overcome the virus when they attract it. And so I'm sure most of you have been reading and hearing a lot about the impact on frontline workers. And I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge those frontline workers, for example, who come in to pick up the PPE. And we think the nurses are important, the social workers are important, the physicians are important, yes. But so too are those folks who are making sure that our environments are clean and disinfected so that we can work in healthy spaces. So I'll start with that acknowledgement which then leads me into what Raj has asked me to talk about. Um, one might ask, why would I pause to take a moment to ensure that I'm being respectful of veterans? Why am I pausing to say, let's think about those folks on the front lines? Well, I'm committed to diversity in the broad, broad sense. Um, and that really speaks to my background, which Raj 
asked me to do it more about. So I was born and raised in a rural area of North Carolina in a county that's Warren County for anyone who's out there who knows the North Carolina geography. North Carolina has 100 counties and Warren County is one of the poorest counties in the state. So many, if not most of the people who reside there are under-resourced. And I grew up in a family that was under-resourced and primarily because my family were sharecroppers. And for those who don't know, once Black people were emancipated, many of them didn't get the substance they needed in order to, to be able to maintain their families. And so they worked on the farms of the people who own the land. Well, that was my grandparents who did that work. And so if you think about my mother's generation, not very many resources there. So I'm what we refer to as first generation college students. So my brother, siblings, and I are the first generation to be formally college educated. Well, I often talk about the fact that my hometown and my upbringing, the person that I am, has influenced the work that I do. So I care about people. I care about people's mental health. I care about people's physical health. And specifically, I care about older adults. And I'll tell you a little bit about how I came to care so much about older adults. When I was a doctoral student, I was working on, I was working in the area of family and medicine and sociology, if you will. And I was very interested in doing my research on families. And when I began to drill down in family dynamics and structures, I didn't see any older people written about in the context of family. Well, as I just mentioned, I grew up low resource. So we also had intergenerational communities. So my grandmother, we lived with my grandmother often. And in our communities, there were always older adults in the communities and in the family. So when I think of family, it's not a family absent of an older adult. And intergenerational relationships are really important for me. And so I began to think about these families like the ones in the communities that I grew up. And I wanted to focus my attention on areas in research that seemed to either ignore or maybe they were simply unfamiliar with the people who whom they were not engaging with most commonly. So I felt a duty and obligation to write about and to include these diverse perspectives. And so that's what brought me to focusing on older adults, aging and gerontology. And then something else that happened in my life that sort of set me on the path that I am is my mother was diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer when I was a doctoral student, as Raj indicated, Boston University. And I just said I was born and raised in North Carolina. So my mother, my family here in North Carolina, and I was far away in Boston. Well, I'm the only girl in the family. And if you know the aging and caregiving literature, by and large, it's women who provide the care. And so as the only daughter, by default, kind of, I became the caregiver for my mom. Well, I was distant. So I was in Boston. She was in North Carolina. And I literally was going back and forth. Now, this was before COVID. So you, know, you could just jump on a plane, come to North Carolina. And I was going back and forth with my mother um, as after she was diagnosed. And this experience, my mother's journey, which she invited me on, really influenced me to do the work that I am passionate about and that I do most now, which is around hospice, palliative care, end-of-life care, and there are distinctions between hospice and palliative care and end-of-life care, um, which we can talk about if Raj wants to give us time to do that. But my mother, having been diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer, keeping in mind that I already said we were low resource, we're from a low resource community, so my mother never had adequate health care. And so when she was diagnosed with cancer, of course, it was advanced, stage four. And it was only four months between her diagnosis and her death. So that really compelled me to think about how can I help others in communities like the ones I grew up in mm -hmm. to understand what is hospice care, what is palliative care, to think about how they actively engage in decision-making around end-of-life care. And so each aspect of my life in terms of my career trajectory has been influenced by the person that I am, the community that I was raised in. And um, I'll stop there in case Raj wants me to elaborate in any areas or maybe go in a different direction. No, no, Karen, that's, that's such a strong personal story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, care, compassion, strength, passion, goals, and you know, all of them are reflected um, in your personal story. Thank you for sharing that. 
Um, there are really some strong points that I, you know, I gathered here. Let me let me start with the first one. Um, you know, when you talk about low resources, you know, not adequate resources for healthcare or uh, opportunities, um, you know, in certain communities, um, uh, I'm let's say inequitable distribution of resources, you know, not having the right equity, not right access to the resources, especially healthcare, which actually, you know, by design should be a, should be a right, you know, should be a privilege, should not be a privilege, you know, it should, should be a right. Um, so tell us more about from then um, to let's say now fast forward, how many ever years that you've gone through, um, you know, that, that personal um, uh, incidents, et cetera, are you seeing uh, in in rural healthcare or access uh, to healthcare in communities and populations that traditionally have had low resources? Are you seeing upward trends? Are you uh, seeing enough work being done there to increase those opportunities and be have you know greater equity towards um, you know healthcare resources? Um, if yes, what what are you seeing there? And if not, what more work you know as an educator slash healthcare worker slash um, uh, influencer now, you know, you're touching many lives today. What would you recommend uh, in terms of creating more equity to healthcare uh, for such communities? Well, first, um, thank you, Raj, for the entree to discuss this. First, I'd like to say that language matters and maybe many people very micro level, but um, as language. But the reason I start with language is because in order for us to understand what's happening with different groups of people, we need to know whom we're referring to and who we're talking about. And you know, on the one hand, I would say, let's not categorize people and lump them all together. But if we don't do that as a researcher, I know without those aggregates, we don't know what the impact is on a group of people. So there's good reason mm -hmm. why we need to think about people as groups and see how are they functioning differently and what has happened uh, that's led to these particular outcomes. And of late, we've been talking a lot about the social determinants of health. And mm -hmm. so if we think about the language around social determinants of health, I feel, and I'll use my I statements because I'm sure I have many colleagues who would disagree, but this is not just based on my personal experience, although a part of it is because I've lived in these communities and I understand people like the people in my communities. Many of my colleagues who only interface with these people in healthcare settings do not understand the culture and why people function as they do. So when I think about the social determinants of health, it, in my ears, I hear that the individual is responsible for this poor health, low income, not having excelled, when I know that it is not the individual's responsibility that they have been oppressed and discriminated against. So let's go back to, again, my background and my upbringing. Because my grandparents were older Black people living in rural North Carolina, there were not very many opportunities. And my grandmother was born in 1897. So my grandmother was elderly, only remember as an elderly person. I think she was probably 60 years old when I was born. So I saw my elderly grandmother's life as a sharecropper living on essentially what was a plantation prior to emancipation, et cetera. So it's really challenging for people who are oppressed and discriminated against to then all of a sudden you have your freedom, go and do what, right? You don't have formal education. Um, and for anyone who wants to fact check this, you can, please do. Um, it's not something I'm proud of, but my grandmother was never allowed to read or write. And so many people refer to that as illiterate, but I would say she was actually literate in many different ways. She could not read or write. That was not a choice of hers they were denied access to schools. So if you think about populations of people who have been denied access to education, starting very early to the point they cannot read or write. My entire, the, my entire life with my grandmother was witnessing her sign an X on a line where we would normally sign our name because she was never allowed to learn to write or read. So there are many people in the community that I grew up in who could not read or write. It wasn't because they didn't want to read or write. It was because they were not allowed to. So when we think about these structural barriers, systemic racism is the language we're using now, and we look historically at the social determinants of health. Well, the reason why these individuals who have poor health is not because they didn't want poor health or didn't want access to healthcare, they were denied. 
So fast forward in healthcare, when I began working with older adults, both connecting uh, with them around research, but also I'm a licensed clinician and I've always kept one arm in the practice arena. So it's also practicing um, in a inpatient settings. So I worked in inpatient and I've always had a clinical appointment along with my academic appointment at universities. That's worked well um, until now. And so I was also working with older adults and understanding what was happening in their communities. And so I began to conduct the research around end of life decision making. I, the literature said that you know older adults were most likely to die in hospitals. And so I wanted to do some research, a, a retrospective study to look at patient data, patient who died in the hospital. And I wanted to understand if there were racial differences. And when I conducted the research, to my surprise, there were not very many Black and Latino or Hispanics um, who died in this hospital, but the vast majority of people who lived around the hospital were people of color, Black and Latino, mostly Latino. And so I thought for certain I would have a huge amount of data to look at, and I didn't. What I found is that mostly white people who died in the hospital. Well, if you know anything about retrospective you know, data, it's already collected, so you can't really drill down and find things that are not there. So I had to design my own studies. I said, well, if I want to understand this better, I've got to go to the people and ask them, what do you think is going on here? So I designed a focus group study, and that's when you bring people together as qualitative research. And I went into these various communities and conducted these focus groups. And I would ask them questions about the decision, where the place of where would you want to die? I would ask them questions about advanced care planning. Are you thinking about whether you want um, to be intubated? Like if you were really sick, would you want to be on a ventilator? Those kinds of things. And I asked them those questions. Are you planning? Did you plan for it? And I found that one religiosity was a huge factor. So many of the people would say, well, we don't plan for the end of life. You know, when God is ready, you know, it'll happen. I also learned that those individuals said that they would not go to this hospital where I thought they were going to get care. And they said, that's a white people's hospital. Now, mind you, I'm talking in the 2000s. This wasn't in, you know, the 1950s. This was fairly recent. And they said, we remember when we couldn't go to that hospital. So we don't go there. We go on the other side of town. So even though there were diverse populations living around this inner city hospital, they were going elsewhere to get their care. Well, the point in this is that people's experiences matter. If you grew up with segregation, not being able to go into a particular area of town, now that you're 70, 80 years old, you're not going to be so excited about, yay, I can go there. What you're probably going to be thinking about is what's going to happen to me if I go there. Will they be welcoming? And so if you think about healthcare, that's many of the reasons why people who we think have access to care don't think the care is accessible. And one, they don't think they'll be treated fair life care, as we can all imagine. Here you are at your vulnerable state of being. And now you have to trust the people around you to do the right thing in terms of your healthcare. So I had older adults who I would meet with during my focus groups and I would tell them there's something that's called a good death. And for those of you in the audience, if you look it up, there really is something called a good death. I mean, they've established, researchers have established those domains and it says if you do these five things and the person will die well and have a good death. As a young researcher, I thought, I'll go into the communities of color that I'm interested in. And I'll tell them about this good death. I'll ask them, you know, why, why don't they go to this hospital? All those things. And I learned so much from that community of people, from those focus groups. One, they told me, I'm not going to be anybody's guinea pig. I don't want them testing me to see if something is good or not. And they truly believe that they might be used as guinea pigs. Well, some people might say, oh, that's so far-fetched. Like, why would anyone in 2012 or 2010 or 11 still believe that? Well, if we only need to look at the Tuskegee experiment, right? We can take that one, which was conducted by the CDC in which Black men were injected with a virus to see how it would grow. 
and many of them did not give consent in the way that we think of consent today. And they also, many of them didn't know that this virus was growing inside of them. You can read about the Tuskegee experience and you can categorize it in any way you want or summarize it any way you want. The point is these black men were participating in a research study. And I believe the last one lived to the later than the beyond this, they stopped, the study discontinued in the 70s. So if you can imagine, people lived on into the 90s, into, so their family members were well aware that they participated in this research and what happened to them. So fast forward, this, you know, this happened in our community. So we're skeptical about research. We're skeptical about injections. I mean, look at what's happening now with the vaccine, mm-hmm. with the COVID vaccine. We're all reading about the fact that in communities of color, the skepticism. Well, hopefully hearing not just my talk, but hearing the experiences of people historically in communities will help everyone to understand, you know, they have a healthy dose of skepticism around vaccinations. And there's a long list of medical research experimentations, et cetera, in which Black people in this country were used at the expense of creating this wonderful medical uh, alternatives that we have, but we still need to think about the fact that Black people were used for experimentation and for physicians to perfect uh, their procedures. And so when people are not accessing um, these healthcare systems, it's with good reasons. And until we can change the context and people can see that they are treated fairly and equitably, they will not access healthcare. They will continue to be skeptical about things like vaccinations. And again, you know, since COVID, thinking about George Floyd and, you know, the killing of George Floyd, and here we were all sheltering in, not much else to do except media, whether that's television or, you know, YouTube or Facebook, you know, we were all paying attention and we all saw it. We all saw the killing of George Floyd, but we also saw and heard the disproportionate number of Black and Brown people who were dying of COVID. And so this is all happening in our in our environments, in our context, in healthcare spaces today. So when you think about mental health, which is what mm-hmm. uh, I think Raj wants me to talk about in the mental health space, I think it's important for us not to separate the mental health from the physical health. We are far more accepting of physical health care because we've seen it and it's acceptable. If you have a broken arm, of course, you're going to go, you know, get it fixed, right? Um, If you have a heart condition, you're going to go and make sure that you tell your loved one, let's get you, you know, care so you can treat your heart, but not your emotions, not your mental health. And now, and I won't say more than ever, but certainly as important as ever, we need to be paying attention to mental health. Well, historically in many communities of color, emphasis was not on mental health because if you look further back as I have gone back um, to when black people didn't have rights to healthcare, et cetera, there's a lot of information research you can see that black people were considered mentally ill. And if you want to go as far back as the slave era, you will see that that was a tactic that slave owners used um, when they did horrible things to people. They would say the response is because they're mentally ill. So culturally, Black people developed this resistance to mental health labels because we were all told those are a bunch of crazy people and they're running around. I mean, I'm using their language, not my language, but it was very pejorative. And so what Black people did is denounce that. We are healthy, we can take on anything, we don't need help mentally, emotionally, which hasn't served us well. Um, It hasn't served communities of color well in the same way that not accessing hospice care or palliative care, end-of-life care isn't serving us well either. But we need to look structurally at where this comes from. And once we see that it's structural, and it isn't just that people don't understand, then maybe we can begin to develop intervention ways in which we can get people to see and understand that this care is important and it's meant for you as well. And you will be treated well when you come in to meet with or now virtually to meet with those who are going to help you clinicians who can help you to take care of your mental health. But there is an abundance of stigma in these communities around mental health. 
And this has all been perpetuated by what we see and hear in the largest society and also those structural barriers. No, absolutely, Karen. I think uh, those are those are strong um, observations and very, very true and substantiated observations. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, you know, I just want to underscore a couple things uh, that you just mentioned, uh, just for the sake of our audience and for my own understanding. Frankly, this is this is very deep. Um, just just creating access to certain resources does not mean the problem has been solved unless you take into consideration people's experiences, their culture, their sensitivity towards um, you know um, um, certain exposures. Um, you know, having gone through. You know, not having access and potential uh, denials for a certain period of time, their experiences do matter. Um, and if you do not solve the problem of that, you have still not solved the problem of creating better access to healthcare. That's, I think, such a great point. Um, I'm, you know, along those lines, and now you spoke about mental health as well, to talk about sometimes it's easier to go get care for your physical problems now you talk about mental health where you have to share your emotions you know your feelings and kind of completely put yourself out there uh, the cultural sensitivity and people's experiences do matter even more so so what i'm thinking is because of that um the the access to mental health or even recognizing that there are some mental health problems or stigma around coming out in the open and kind of seeking care could be bigger in certain uh, communities versus others. Uh, is that potentially better solved by creating more awareness, or is it better solved by um, you know creating more access points of care, or potentially using now digital access points of care? Where, where does the actual solution lie, or is it a combination of all this? Uh, especially you know the reason why again, like you rightly pointed because of pandemic it has come to the light even more you know the mental health anxiety depression issues have come to the light even more so because of that we are also seeing you know a lot of organizations trying to create better methods of having access to um, mental health care uh, but one is not sure if the problem is being solved right i think you know just by creating more infrastructure you don't really know if the problem is being solved so where does the solution lie in terms of creating that better access I think um, there's not a you know one shot deal. I, I agree that it's complex and it requires multiple interventions or multiple approaches. But I think one that's really critical, and some people may say, well, you're starting at a higher level, but I think we need to diversify the workforce. And what I mean by this is, if we have more people working in these settings where they and I use claim, I'm not suggesting that they're not, but I'm saying the claim is that we're welcoming, you know, everyone has a diversity statement now. We don't discriminate against any populations. But if you talk to people, they can describe what the experience has been like for them and how discriminatory it is. But for the people who are of the dominant group, they often do not consciously realize that they are treating patients and clients disparagingly. And what I mean by that, you know, this unconscious bias and, you know, again, with the overarching, let's just say racism. And we know that in America, by and large, it was white people who were in the highest positions before we were a much more diverse uh, country, black and white, for the most part, Native American people were here even before um, Columbus discovered them. I mean, they were already here. Then we have this this historical shift where as we look over time at the evolution of you know everything from an industry to medicine right by and large if you look at the disciplines primarily they're white people i mean let's just say it like it is you know this is one of the most incredible times for me in since i've been alive in this country because we can actually say race out loud when we didn't used to we can say black when we didn't used to be able to even say the word people would be offended sure. so we can talk sure. about structural racism and systemic racism now which is really important so if we look at the dominant group and we look at how these environments are not diverse and even though there's a commitment to diversity, not very much is changing. Whether you're looking at, you know, in STEM, if you're looking at science, technology, engineering, it's predominantly white. And as different 
races, ethnicities, nationalities are coming into the workforce, things are getting better. M many of us would say they're getting better. You could talk to some people and they would probably say, no, it's not. But if you're in the dominant group and you've been in the positions of power, who doesn't want to remain there? No one wants to feel marginalized, et cetera. So in these environments that are predominantly white, there are many people who for decades have functioned in environments where it wasn't diverse. And so just bringing diverse people into the environment, hiring them, credentialed people, doesn't necessarily change the context. And so if people have been not accustomed to treating diverse patients, and now they're doing the same thing with the diverse um, that they were doing before, maybe they're not culturally competent. Maybe there are things that this cultural group wouldn't even want. And I've talked with many clinicians, I do a lot of training workshops who say, I treat all my patients the same. Well, you might want to rethink that because it's a good, there's a good chance that all of your patients don't want or need the same interaction or engagement. And it's so complex to address because in many of these environments, they, the dominant group has prevailed since the beginning of time. So now that these environments are more diverse, some people are still holding on to their old antiquated ways of doing things. And it doesn't feel good to tread into this area where now I have to unlearn, I have to deconstruct and think about patient care or clinician providing you know, their clients different care when I've always done it this way. And then there's this dismissal of the cultural differences that you know, many people feel marginalized in their communities when they go in and they have a different way of doing things. They've said that clinicians don't validate that because here's a model, a framework that I've been trained on and I want you to accept the care this way. And therein lies the problem both in physical health care and mental health care. So although we can now engage, create this access, we haven't done much to change the models and the way in which we engage with individuals. And we're not often adept at meeting them where they are, meaning respecting the dignity of their culture, their cultural ways of doing, etc. And so many of my colleagues whom I have this conversation with, they're not even aware that something that they're doing could be offensive or it could be marginalizing of a group of people or even an individual. So I think that increasing the workforce, having more diverse workforce is one place that we really need to pay attention to because that diverse workforce will also help to shift things with the professionals and providers, but also it sends a message to the patient population that somebody there who looks like me, sounds like me, might understand me a bit better than those people who I know will look at me as being the other. Yep. So, so you know, even if we think about diversity, we use the term diversity and everyone's comfortable with using it, but diverse from what? So going back to what I said about language, when we use the term of diverse populations, we need to be thinking about the fact that we're othering populations and the standard is what? White. But we never have mm -hmm. to say white, it's just understood that diverse is everybody else. Yeah, no, no that, that's a great point. In fact, um, um, diversifying workforce should be more about aligning the workforce with the actual needs of the customers, the patients, the consumers. It's, you know, yeah. it's it, you're absolutely right. It's not. I'll be bold and bold because I've seen a thing or two, frankly, myself. I'll be bold to say nowadays diversity is also sometimes being done just for the sake of it, right? You know, it's, 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 oh, yeah. it's being used as a buzzword. But I think truly you've defined it really well. Diversity should have as an innate objective and definition and goal to make sure you're aligning with the populations that you are serving so that you're culturally sensitive, you're racially sensitive, you really can understand what their needs are and you can serve them better versus you know, just using quantitative um, uh, definitions like, oh, okay, we have 10% of our workforce diverse, our goal is met. No, that doesn't help at all. You're absolutely right. And frankly, we um, at Direct Shifts, we are proud to be in the space. You know, we are, we, our platform connects healthcare workers, clinicians directly to employers like clinics, hospitals, health systems, and other telehealth companies. And most of the times when we engage with the clients, we ask them, what kind of clinicians do you want? Who is the best clinician for you? And we have actually connected clinicians with employers and healthcare organizations that are serving underserved communities. Some of them, it it was so uh, 
confusing to me that some of them had positions or healthcare workers not come there and work like, you know, they did not have a nurse practitioner or a family medicine physician for the past 10 months. They were trying to provide primary care just with one nurse. And we actually were able to help them connect with clinicians and they were actually able to hire and staff for, you know, some primary care providers. Um, and so we are proud to be, you know, enabling those kinds of things with technology in our company. And, you know, like, just like you said, the, it's not just enough to diversify your workforce or just talk about it, aligning with the actual, um, you know, population's needs. Um, I and you mentioned one point, which is also becoming more sensitive to the culture and races so that you can understand their needs. You know, I say it's not just social determinants of health. It should be cultural determinants of health, racial determinants of health. There are multiple other things that need to be factored in. But you're also an educator yourself. You're, you're the head of school. Should some of these things be formal trainings, um, Karen? Should Because there are a lot of providers, healthcare workers out there that are in the field, like you said, that may be providing care oblivious to how they're providing it because they've learned to provide it in, in a certain fashion. They may not be taking into consideration some of these you know, um, factors like cultural sensitivity, you know, and all of these things. And like you said, the example that you gave, that practitioner might act, might have been fully thinking that he or she is doing a great job by treating every patient equal, may not realize that there is actually a problem in it. So how can training uh, and formal education or potential CMEs, you know, can, can, they, can that take care of this? You know, I wouldn't say it could take care of it, but it's a great place to introduce additional learning. So as I said earlier, it's complex and there's no one magic wand that we can wave and say, okay, problem solved. But I, I education is essential. But what I find happening is when the workplace, whether it's a corporation, a healthcare setting, clinic, et cetera, is not diverse, those people oftentimes don't think they need the training. They don't need the education because it doesn't apply to them. And I see that oftentimes, and I work across disciplines. For example, I was talking with a group of white women last week who said that in the workplace, the clinician said, you know, I'm so tired of talking about diversity and it doesn't apply to us. Right. And so this person was bothered by it, but didn't speak up. And so in the group, she was saying, I want to know how I can give voice to these issues. And I know that it's really difficult for one individual to speak up, especially if the administration and if it's not coming from the top, you know, it might be more harmful than helpful for you to say anything about that. So the reason why I say the workforce, if the workforce is more diverse, it tends to compel people to say, OK, well, maybe we should. To, you know, have these trainings. But absolutely, trainings are essential. Um, continuing education, I think, is essential, should be. And some professions are requiring now cultural competence, which I think is great. And so they have to get continued, they're required to get continuing education in the area of cultural competence. And I think medicine, I job um, because I see that it's built into their curriculum. I've been reading uh, quite a bit about their cultural competence standards. There's an abundance of research coming from the medical side around cultural competence, but there's some disciplines that are dismissive of it and they say we can never be culturally competent. And my response is always, well, how can we, you know, they said we can't ever totally know everything about culture. Well, can we to know everything about anything? Like that's not what competence isn't about knowing everything about everything. It's about setting a standard for folks in the profession that you expect sort of as a just a standard of practice, and then individuals achieve those. And so if we can have competence in other areas, which we do, otherwise we wouldn't have state boards and licensure and all that. We have decided in our professions what the standard is and people can achieve it by you know, exam, or there are lots of different ways. It doesn't have to be examination. The, the point I'm making is that there are people who feel that cultural competence is unattainable. And I always question, why is a group of highly competent professional people would be dismissive of cultural competence, but you believe you can be competent in everything else. I think they really need to think about that. Um, but I think that the education is essential because people don't know. They genuinely don't. If you haven't had to think about your race, your ethnicity, your culture, 
lecture, we begin these conversations, you're going to be confused. I've been in many classrooms with students teaching about cultural competence. And I, I always ask my students, you know, to think about their cultural group and to talk. And I've had students, white students, to say, I don't have culture. Part of me feels a little sad because I think everyone has culture. But so let's just talk about going back to language. We talk about what culture is, everyone has it. I get students thinking about how they were raised, what kind of messages did you hear in your home, you know, those kinds of things. Well, that early socialization, as we know, in those formative years, you bring into medical school with you or wherever you're practicing, you bring that with you. Those values to some degree. And so you're engaging with people based on what you've been told. But if we know that the dominant group, whatever dominant group is, you know, it could be race, it could be gender. You know, if you're of the dominant group, you don't have to think about your place of privilege. You don't have to think about your race. So when I talk with folks and I say the, the construction of whiteness is oppressive to some people, they say, what do you mean there's no construction of whiteness? They don't even know that it exists. But we know that the standard comes from the dominant group and everyone else needs to perform in the way that they do. The training is essential, um, but you know, of course you can't if you don't have an entity or a person to provide the leadership to value and sanction this and say, this is something we need to do. And we saw a lot of companies, corporations putting out their Black Lives Matter, we support Black Lives and you know they were willing to make put the statement out there. But then what else did they do other than putting their statement out there? Did they change their hiring practices? You know, do, do they work within their care settings to help their, whether they're residents, whether they're clients or patients to understand that having diverse clinicians makes the entire environment better because you have so many different perspectives to draw upon. And I've engaged in research where I've talked with folks, what did it feel like for you to go into that setting and see someone who looked like you? Even if that person wasn't their care provider, it felt good knowing there's someone in here who looks like me or who is of the same cultural background as I am. So I feel a little better in this environment because I know that they were welcoming of that person. Maybe they'll be welcoming of me also. And so even if we're, you're not, we're not talking about Concordian care, even though in research we're talking a lot about Concordian care now. Um, but even if we're not saying you have to match the person with the exact culture, but you should at least have enough diverse employees, clinicians that you can ask, as you said you do, to see if that would be their preference. But many care settings can't, don't ask because they don't have the clinicians to provide them. So they don't ask and they miss an opportunity, as I said, to provide more culturally relevant care. Yep, and there's an yep. ethical issue. Yeah, it's eth I mean, if you think about on the ethical, from an ethical standpoint, should some people not have to think about their culture and aligning with because everyone there is like them and other people have to constantly think about it? I'll give you an example. Someone asked me recently, give me an example of, you know, in a care setting that I've worked in previously, <clears throat> what some of this systemic racism might look like. So I gave them an example of something that isn't necessarily racial, but cultural, because I knew they would be able to understand this. I said, in this care setting, you know, spiritual care is a part of the care. I mean, that's standard care, spiritual care. And I asked her, <clears throat> have you ever seen a person of color, a person who is not white, a non-white person, provide spiritual care in this setting? Every week we have a Catholic priest that comes, and I'm not, this is not about Catholicism, but about diversity, we have patients who are not Catholic. What about those patients in this setting, in this care setting, long-term care setting, that the only spiritual care they get is from a Catholic priest who happens to be a white male? Do you really think you're meeting everyone's spiritual need by having this white male Catholic priest? And people aren't thinking about that. They just don't think about it. They just think we've got a priest, he's coming. But I also said, look at the people who aren't going into mass to meet with this priest. Well, that's right. So going back to this accessible, they feel like the priest comes. If they don't go meet with the priest, they don't have any spiritual needs. No, they have spiritual needs. It's just this environment isn't yeah. meeting them. No, that's a great example. I think, I think you know, uh, uh, if, if there were any doubts in our audience's minds on what exactly 
needs to be done in creating the right access. That example really clarifies it. You are absolutely right. I think it's not that they don't have the needs, except you have not created the right structures or right access. Um, let me switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, um, uh, Karen, um, you're also head of the school of social work. Um, you know, you see your students graduating, and a couple of um, themes that are continuously evolving and becoming more and more uh, bigger topics. You know, we'll touch our day-to-day -day lives every day. Is one is the discussion around race, culture, and being more sensitive, being more inclusive. What needs to be done? Yes, the discussion has started. Have can some people do more? Absolutely, but I believe you know, you know, it's it's like you said, we are more comfortable talking about it. You know, kind of doing something about it now. Um, so I think that's that's only here to grow. I believe. Um, and then the second one is technology. Technology disruption happening every day, and now we are even doing things that we always thought should be done on site on the premises. We are now doing them remotely through remote technologies. Technology is also kind of evolving. So with these two uh, themes and topics that are constantly evolving, becoming you know our day-to-day -day, um, topics, and that will touch our day-to-day -day lives. Um, are you seeing, um, you know, as students graduate, are, are as more and more clinicians come into this healthcare space, are you seeing um, them adopting these changes well enough? Um, I, uh, you know, how what is what would be your recommendations to you know new clinicians coming into uh, the communities to serve the populations? How should they be adopting to these evolving themes, you know, on an ongoing basis? Technology, I, you know, culture, race, sensitivity. I, I would say they should approach it um, through a cultural competence lens. And the reason I say this is culturally, and whether you're looking at culture of socioeconomic status, folks who live in rural areas, et cetera, bandwidth first and foremost is a problem in rural areas because here in North you know, aren't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily have access to bandwidth. And so, you know, fully online might not work for them. Uh, in terms of telehealth, I think it's a great thing. I always did think it was great even before COVID because I think it's some options. And the more we can give people options, the better we can serve a more diverse range of people. And so for some people, they would prefer not to come into your office. And in the past, they didn't have that option. They had to come. So if we think about, you know, transportation could be an issue for certain people. And that transportation, what if you're in a city, it could be a if you don't ambulate well, again, I'm always thinking about older adults, if I can't get to you, can we have this other way of engaging? In terms of accessibility, it is has really been incredible to watch and see and know that individuals can meet with their primary care provider um, more efficiently. And so during COVID, for example, my, my daughter's a clinician as well, and she practices in Boston, and, and she thought she was exposed to COVID and she needed to get a COVID test. Well, she reached out, her physician scheduled it, she did the drive up, and then her physician met with her um, electronically via whatever the format, the platform they use, Zoom, WebEx, we have so many now. But the point was, she was able to get an appointment more quickly and easily. It was convenient because she was in her home. She didn't have to leave to go into a care setting, you know, perhaps further exposing herself to COVID. Fortunately, she was negative, but listening to this process that she went through, I thought, why well, wanna change this? You know, why wouldn't we want to give patients the opportunity to sit in their homes and correspond with you? And so now that we've created or improved the technology such that there's so many ways that we can assess and evaluate why would we ever not want to continue to do that? But I do think that there's good reason to have a combination of both. Sometimes you need to physically sit in a room with a person um, if possible in order to see what else is going on around them. I think we need a sort of multi-module approach and we need to be able to determine when is the need and it should be based on demand and need. When is it best for this patient or this client or this community that we do this electronically? When is it not? And in terms of competencies, I find that the students coming in as undergraduate students, they've already been exposed to computers since birth, <laughs> probably. And so they're very computer savvy and they're comfortable with 
We get to use a lot of technology in the classroom and it's great because the students already know how to use it and we just, you know, we provide it, here it is, and great, they use it. But in healthcare settings and workplaces, even though now we have electronic medical records, which is really convenient, there are people who are working in uh, the care setting who feel that technology has taken over. They really, you know, for so many years, it was individual in the same space meetings. And there are people who, you know, providers who value that and would like to soon get back to that. And some of them are not as computer savvy and technologically savvy. I mean, they've spent their entire careers not using technology in the workplace. So now to just shift to that, um, it's, it's difficult to change a person's value about how they care for individuals. So I think we need to approach it with a combination of options and resources, but I definitely hope that um, telehealth, telemedicine is here to stay. Yep, yep, great point. You know, we are working with um, a teletherapy company, helping them onboard, you know, multiple social workers, therapists, and counselors onto their platform because they want to provide access to uh, thousands and thousands of patients. We're working with them. And, you know, that's that's one thing that we're seeing as well. You know, more and more social workers and therapists and counselors um, are becoming more comfortable uh, with technology and providing teletherapies, you know, even though they're not there, the face-to-face -face video, options or helping them so you're you're right i think um you know approaching it from better adoption of those technology will will you know to a large extent enable better access to those patients um and, um, and Raja, yeah i, I would want to also i don't i would be remiss if i didn't say this because you um touched on it earlier for continuing education it's so much more um i'll say easy to facilitate uh, a continuing education fly halfway around the country or the world to get it. Um, it's been great. I will have, I know that many people are focused on, you know, the horrific things that have happened with COVID and so am I, but there have been some things that have emerged telehealth and other technologies, but also the continuing education that's available now um, electronically online using these different platforms, really incredible. And I've heard some clinicians say they're mobile now to get their continuing educations than they were when they had to travel to get them. So I just wanted to add that. No, absolutely. Great point. Great point. Um, last question, um, you know, Karen, for all of our audience out there, and then you know, later on when we actually play this you know, recording to a lot of our clinicians in the network, a lot, a lot, a lot of them potentially in the mental health space, um, you know, this this question is actually for the benefit of all of them. Um, you know, you are an active clinician. You're a head of school. You're, you know, the head of school in North Carolina, the uh, School of Social Work. Um, you are a researcher. You also help multiple not-for-profit organizations. You have chaired a couple of them. You still do active work in helping with aging populations, oncology, you know, and social work, mental health, etc. Um, you are a great success story in yourself, especially you know after you have shared some of your personal stories of having gone through your share of challenges in accessing. The resources and then you know struggling through um and powering through actually i should say um to get to the success of where you are you know there are a lot of people that would you know potentially aspire to be you you know out there a lot of clinicians are probably starting out there a lot of other young individuals starting out there that i'm sure would aspire to be you um to be doing multiple things touching many lives um uh, and you know creating greater impact in the communities that that you have been brought up in or that you can serve um, what would be, you know, your recommendations from your personal stories? Um, you know, especially when a pandemic has hit, a lot of jobs have been impacted. Um, some people, I'm sure, you know, are, are still thinking, is this going to ever come back to normal? Uh, are they still going to have opportunities to thrive? And especially in that kind of a setting, what would be your personal recommendation to everybody that is aspiring for success um, on how to, how to go about it? How to face challenges? Um, what has you know the grit that has got you got you here? Um, how would you share that with our audience in a few sentences? Thank you, Raj, for this opportunity. I think this is a great way to sum things up. And first, I'll say the reason I took such a broad break, broad 
brush approach to talking about uh, mental health in the way that I did is because it's directly related to what you've asked me to speak about, which is I didn't have a crystal ball and I didn't know where, you know, I didn't plan to be where I am now. I'm in very much in the moment, always doing my best at whatever I'm tasked with doing or whatever um, opportunity I have embarked upon. And so when I talk about the healthcare settings and I align it with mental health, it's because that was my career trajectory. I didn't know be working in hospital settings. Um, but what happens is when you continue to ensure that you have the credentials, I think credentialing is important. So for me, if the standard in practice is that you achieve X, I want to achieve X. I set the bar low for myself and I don't set the bar low for others. I aspire to, um, to, to succeed and to excel. So in terms of I'm a full professor, my rank, and so I was assistant professor, associate professor, now full. Some people have asked the question, why didn't you stop when you were at the associate level? You were tenured. Well, if the standard is professor, then I want to aim for excellence. And so, but when you are aiming for excellence, meaning you are credentialed, you have your competence, and opportunity. So many times for me, I've been tapped for positions that I would not have thought to apply to. So what I would say to the audience is in your work environment, people are watching you know, the way you work, the way, and this is the way promotions happen, is a person continues to be at their best. You know, the continuing education that we're talking about, making sure that you're continually growing in your business and expertise. Um, you're continuously reading and exposing yourself, and now it can be virtual exposure, exposure web, webinars, and et cetera, but continuously engaged, actively engaged in learning and keeping your knowledge current, et cetera. And so this broad brush approach is because I've been in many, I've worked in many different settings and I believe that mental health is taking place, mental health work is taking place in all of those settings. And as, as a social worker, we truly do practice in different settings, whether it's schools or hospitals, or, I mean, it's just, it runs a gamut. So I do think that we have to have this out of the box thinking and not just think that, you know, mental health is happening in this one space. And so as a clinician, you can be effective in many different environment or thought about mental health as this one space. It isn't one space. And so I would encourage you to think about, you know, if you're enjoying the work that you do, then I would encourage you to continue reading and learning and expanding your repertoire in terms of knowing what it is you might be able to do as a mental health clinician and be brave, um, be willing to be uncomfortable. For me, I've been uncomfortable a lot. But again, if you look at my background, so to circle back to this, Raj, if you are a person who has oftentimes been the only one in an environment, then you know what it's like to sit with uncomfortableness. And so in terms of my career, I don't shy away from being uncomfortable because I've been uncomfortable most of my early years. Rarely am I uncomfortable now in my career because I've learned how to not be uncomfortable. But if I am in an uncomfortable environment, I don't shy away from it. I'm fine with being in an uncomfortable environment. Now, that probably doesn't sound pleasant to many people because they're thinking, who wants to be uncomfortable? But can you truly grow and expand your professional opportunities and your mental health practice if you're not willing to get out of your comfort zone and try something different and new. And that's what this whole diversity landscape and approach is about. It's about doing something different, but impactful. Yep, yep. Thank you, Karen, so much for that. I think, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna summarize it all in my head and definitely remember this, you know, continue to learn, uh, get uncomfortable, um, aim for higher credentials and aspire for excellence. Um, you know, I think if you just remember all those, for all those clinicians out there that are aspiring to be, you know, Dr. Karen Bullock, um, touching multiple lives, creating greater impact every day, please remember that. Um, and, um, you know, it has been a great privilege to have you on our platform, um, Karen. Thank you for making the time and sharing your story and sharing your observations, views, and recommendations with all of our audience. Um, with, for all of you out there, that concludes our podcast today. Um, you know, you'll have the access to the recording as well. Please subscribe to the channel. 
um, as well as please like and share this. I'm sure there are multiple others that may not have the opportunity to attend today uh, would benefit from, you know, from the recording um, and we will make it available to everybody in our network as soon as possible. Um, again, Karen, thank you so much for making the time. Um, um, you know, we will gladly consider you a friend of our company and, you know, it'll, I, I can assure you that there'll be multiple more brainstormings with you given the plethora of knowledge and observations you gave us today. So thank you again. Thank you, Raj, and thank you to the audience. I appreciate this opportunity, and I will say that I live a wonderful quality of life, very happy, but don't forget your self-care. So that's one thing I will add. Find the things that help you to take care of yourself first, because if you're not at your best, you can't take care of other people at their best. Well said, thank you. Okay, thanks. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Karen Bullock, and uh, thank you, Wamshi, um, for such a wonderful interview. Thank you, Karen, for putting in your more than two decades of dedicated service and commitment uh, with the community and sharing your experience and little stories uh, with all of our audience. So, if you're watching this, um, if you're watching the replay, I would also uh, advise you to listen to our podcast on Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. And as Wamshi mentioned, again, hit like, share, comment, and subscribe to the channel. We'll see you in the next episode of Direct Shift Story uh, tomorrow, again, in the mental health space with uh, Dr. Brian Anderson. And uh, until then, take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.